0: at greenlight.com slash ACAST. You
2: use reason to generate useful solutions,
0: but
1: you use feeling to pick amongst those useful solutions. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. So, the Australian election is now over and we are returning to the normal format once again, where I find big minds from around the world who have a massive wild idea that they wish to share with the world. So, philosophers and poets and writers and creatives of various sorts. While politics is all very fun, I have to say, it's great to be back to this more expansive territory with you. So, this episode... We're going to explore a wild idea for making decisions. I have to say I'm a shocking decision maker in the sense that I take every decision seriously. And somehow, for some reason, I'm adamant that there is a perfect decision to be made out there in all instances. And so that makes my decision making process super, super anxiety riddled. So I'll just say this up front, the process of choosing happens in the same part of the brain, the amygdala, that controls the flight or fight mechanism or anxiety as we experience it. To put things really simply, when you have to make a lot of decisions, you overtax that part of the brain and so you get anxious. And the flip side is that when you're anxious, Decisions become really, really difficult. So you might have noticed when you're fretty and someone asks you what you want to do or what you want to eat for dinner, you just can't. And it sends you into an even wilder panic. I first got an insight into this phenomenon when I read a book called The Art of Choosing by Dr. Sheena Iyengar, who's a psychoeconomist at Columbia University about 10 years ago. I think it was, it explores this incredible paradox. On the one hand, we love choice and like to define ourselves by our choices, like what we wear, the type of dog we own, where we go on holiday, but it also makes us unhappy and anxious as all get up. Plus, we are actually really, really bad at making choices for ourselves. Now, Sheena is arguably the global expert on choice theory, and you might know of her via the very famous JAM experiment, which we'll get to in a moment, and this idea of the paradox of choice, as well as analysis paralysis, which are both phrases that have entered modern lexicons since she first coined them. The Art of Choosing, which is also a TED Talk that's had 4 million views, left a profound impact on me 10 years ago. I remember I read the book beginning to end on an eight-hour flight, and I can't remember where I was heading, it must have been Asia, and I gave it to the person I was sitting next to me when I was done. I think the biggest impact, however, was the fact that I read it with this awareness, Sheena is also fully blind. I've thought about this so often since – how does someone research and store so much information like sift and choose between data and anecdotes, which is what the book writing process is when they can't see it all in front of them. They can't categorize and know you know, what you wrote back on page 145 and you can't see the notes from your editor and so on. I just found this idea wild. Now, I've been emailing Sheena for a while to get her on this podcast, so I'm super excited to talk to her about all of this and also how we can make better decisions in a world where we're really faced with bigger and more important choices, like choices we've never had to face before. Welcome to Wild, Sheena Inga. It's wonderful to have you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Look, we might just kick straight off with the JAM study. I think it really sets things up perfectly for your theory on decisions and choosing. Could you briefly unpack how the JAM study works? So
2: when I was a PhD student at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California, I used to frequent what was then a very unusual store. It was this upscale grocery store called Drager's. Today, that's a story that's not so uncommon, but back then, this was really unusual. And it was unusual because it offered people a lot of choice. So it had something like over 300 different types of mustards and vinegars and different types of mayonnaises and over 100 different types of extra virgin olive oil and over 500 different types of fruits and vegetables. And I used to go to that store fairly frequently, and I used to like going in there and exploring. But one day I asked myself this rather unusual question, which was, how come I liked going there but would never buy anything? And that led me to ask this question, which is, what are the consequences of offering people more and more choice? And I did a very simple study. I did a study that's now often been referred to as the JAM study. Now, their jam aisle back then had about 348 different types of jam, and I picked one brand of jam called Wilkin & Sons, and I set up a tasting booth where I either put out six different flavors of jam or 24 different flavors of jam, and I looked at two things. First, in which case were people more likely to stop and sample some jam? And second, in which case were people more likely to buy a jar of jam? And it turned out more people stopped when there were 24 on display than when there were six, about 60% versus 40%. And those are different populations. But when it came down to buying behavior, you saw the opposite effect. Of the people who stopped when there were 24 on display, only 3% of them bought a jar of jam. Whereas of the people who stopped when there were six on display, of them bought a jar of jam. So that was the first documentation that when people have less, they actually might be more inclined to make a choice than when they have more.
1: Yeah, it's a very interesting study and it actually influenced a lot of decision theory, I think, from that point forward. And I think really that the take home is despite the fact that we think we like lots of choices, in fact, we respond better when we minimize the choices in our lives. And I know that you consult big companies on this. So insurance companies and brands, are there some examples of how less is more and the theories that you've shared with these big companies has resulted in success?
2: So in terms of examples, right, so since the JAM study came out in the year 2000, I would say there's now been over 2,000 different studies that have actually looked at the effects of offering people more and more choice across many, many, many domains of inquiry. In terms of private industry, I would say the first company to come out in the open and formally document the positive consequences of limiting choice was Procter & Gamble, where they showed that when they reduced the number of different shampoo types, they actually saw an increase in sales by over 10%. And there's been many, many stores since then that have either reduced the, uh, the number of options that they have in a particular category or have generally made offering less choice to be a big competitive advantage for themselves like Costco or Trader Joe or Aldi, the big European grocery store. There's a lot of companies that don't go on record, but the sort of informal rule is on average about 80%. Of revenues are gotten from somewhere between 10 to 15%, no more than 20% of the number of choice offerings. And that's a fairly commonly recognized heuristic.
1: Yeah. And if we bring it in closer to the individual, it also plays out in terms of well being, doesn't it? I think you've done a study or you cited an example of a study where people who have less job offers are actually more satisfied when they're out there job hunting.
2: Yeah, I did that study with Barry Schwartz a number of years ago, where we found that even when people do better, right, they get more job offers, they actually get higher salaries. It turns out that despite having quote, objectively better outcomes, for some reason, they're less satisfied with the job offer that they accept than people who have fewer job offers, usually anywhere from one to two. And they, you know, sort of stop at the moment they find one that's, you know, good enough. And it's believed that the reason why that happens is because When you have more job offers, even though you might convince yourself and truly believe that the offer you've accepted is the best of the bunch, for some reason, you still compare that one that you accepted against some imaginary option that might be even more ideal.
1: Yeah, it's all just so paradoxical, and of course Barry Schwartz, who you did that study with, went on to write a book called *The Paradox of Choice*, which many people may have heard of. I think it's also really interesting that we've got this assumption that making choices kind of defines who we are. That that's going to define us as quite unique and different. Our choices, you know, whether it's a holiday destination or what we wear defines us as different. But I seem to recall a study that was done at a brewery. And in terms of people taking drink orders, there was something that spoke to that particular aspect of the paradox.
2: Sure. So it's a well-known study. So these were people that went to a brewery and they went in groups. And in one case, everybody orders the normal way, right? I put in my order, then you put in your order, then the next person puts in their order. In the second case, what happens is that everybody puts in their order, but they put it in quietly. They just write it on the little card and they hand it to the waiter. So two things happen. When we order quietly, there's actually far more homogeneity in what we order. So we do like the same things. But when we order where everybody in a way that everybody can hear what we order, we are less likely to order that which the other person order, right? We want to sort of look a little more unique. And so the person who's the most satisfied often when we order publicly is the one who orders first, because no one wants to be a copycat and order the same thing. Now, in subsequent studies, one of the things that I have found is that we are all convinced that we like things that are more unique than everybody else. But the reality is that when you look at our preferences, we all like the same things. Something that's not too common and not too far out, just slightly unique is what we all converge on.
1: The assumptions that we work to are far different and I just love hearing about all of these paradoxes. It's somehow a comfort. It's I find relief in knowing I don't have to go out there and search for so many different options before I make a decision. It actually makes things a little easier and we'll get to that in a moment. I guess the real point here is it's not like that we want to live in a dictatorship. We still do want to have options. You've done studies that have shown that it's not the case that we want no choice either, right? So it's about limiting the quantity of options. And I'm wondering if you can actually point out what's the magic number that you've come up with as to how many options are the ideal number that our brains can cope with, our wellness levels can cope with, and will produce a better outcome ultimately.
2: So we know for sure that if you give people no choice, and that's true whether you're talking about humans or animals and you take away control, there are some very severe negative health consequences associated with taking away choice. The question becomes how much choice is empowering. And I suppose I still go back to George Miller from 1956 who came out with the seminal paper um, called the magical number seven plus or minus two. And what's interesting about that paper where he argues that our brains can essentially handle up to seven plus or minus two bits of information and compare and contrast those bits of information, you know, we still, you know, no matter what number of studies we've looked at it, no one can conclusively prove that it's seven plus or minus two. But it's always interesting to me how it somehow usually lands somewhere in there. So my personal feeling is as the number of choices and the amount of information associated with choice has become increasingly more complex, it's, you know, often maybe closer to three or
1: five, but seven plus or minus two is a good heuristic. Mm, it's it's really worth keeping in mind when you're, I don't know, looking at Airbnb options for your next holiday, or you're trying to decide between, I don't know, different pasta sauces in the supermarket aisle. And I think that's why a lot of people do shop at places like Aldi. In some ways, they do like a limited choice. But of course, Sheena, this is probably the really interesting part, the really important part of your thesis. And it's the cultural element of all of this. And when I read the book, I've got to say, the thing that jumped out at me, and I've cited these studies ever since, and I'd love you to share this particular study about arranged marriages versus love marriages. (laughs) It just fascinated me at the time because, I don't know, for some reason, arranged marriages intrigued me. I couldn't imagine it was like, I knew a few people that had been in arranged marriages. So I'd been thinking about it for a while, but you of course straddle a bunch of cultures. You were raised in a traditional Indian family, but in America and your personal experience of course is to have had a arranged marriage. Can you talk us through your findings in the book that spoke to this?
2: It's a great question. And it's something that, you know, we can theorize about. And there's some data, but they really, you are comparing apples to oranges when you talk about arranged versus love marriage. Uh, My parents had a very traditional arranged marriage. They met each other on their wedding night for the very first time. My father didn't even know what my mother looked like until he lifted the veil after they got married. And that was not uncommon back then. You know, Lots of people have arranged marriages. And I certainly grew up in a world where almost every Indian that I knew had an arranged marriage. And Americans had love marriages. And when I was growing up in school, and I would just to shock people, I would say in a very calm, matter of fact, voice that, oh, yeah, my parents met each other on their wedding night. And the reaction Mm -hmm. was it was truly special. It was like, oh, my God, if somebody were to do that, I would just die. And I can't tell you that I ever thought my parents looked like they were about to die. So I would say that in terms of the data, what you see is the following. On the day of a wedding, love marriages, let's imagine it's a one to five scale. How happy are you? How optimistic you are about your marriage? People that enter a love marriage on the day of their wedding are on the top of the moon. As they should be, right? It's a chosen person, right? And they feel they know this person and they have high expectations, Hmm. right? On the day of an arranged marriage of their wedding, their expectations from the marriage are much lower. Like a two or a three.
1: They're just hoping. They're hoping for the best. They're
2: hoping for the best, but they don't really know how it's going to turn out. Now, what happens as you observe these couples over the next 25 years is that love marriages become increasingly less satisfied as the years go by, whereas arranged marriages become increasingly more satisfied, right? Because it's kind of like roommates in a dorm, right? Or, Or partners working together at a job or tenured colleagues, right? Over time, you just get used to them and you learn how to work together.
1: Yes. And I think the the point that you make in the book is that choice, um, we can learn to love our choices. That is a very, again, comforting, and inspiring thing to work from that we can have our lot in life and we can actually learn to love the decision, the choice, the life path that we took um, at some point in our lives.
2: Which many of us do. I mean, we do many times accept whatever we are, right? Um, I, I should say, though, that, you know, given what I've said about arranged marriage, I actually never had an arranged marriage myself. My first marriage was actually a, a love marriage and I, I married an Indian. And actually, one of the things we discovered was it's actually not that easy to have a love marriage in a world that prefers arranged marriage because it gets really complicated. Parents, there's a lot more going on in an arranged marriage that doesn't happen in the love marriage case because it's really a marriage between two families. So it actually got very complicated because we did in a love marriage situation
1: So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com spoken today.
0: Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more, plus... Keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST.
1: Yeah, wow. That's um, really showing um, or or spelling out the results of your studies, isn't it? That the cultural implications (laughs) in making decisions is really profound. It is interesting, isn't it? This idea that we can actually be rendered choiceless in the case of an arranged marriage. And of course, it does operate within a realm where people who love you and know you make your decision on your behalf, but we can actually learn to love our decisions. And if you extrapolate that out or the decisions that have been made for us, if you extrapolate that out, When we're really struggling to make a decision, as so many people are these days, as the world becomes more and more complex, there is some comfort to be found in the fact that we can actually wind up satisfied not whatever the outcome, but in many instances, even if it doesn't turn out to be the perfect scientifically proven decision at that moment, we can learn to to settle into our decision and make it the right decision. I guess that's the point, isn't it? We can make decisions the right decision through tenacity, well, no one choice is the
2: really big choice, even though we often think it is, right? It's any, for any one choice to work out, it takes a series of choices. So if you think about your life, it's really just
1: a series of choices. So while we're talking love, there's also a really mm-hmm. famous study called the Love on a Suspension Bridge Study. And oh, yeah, that's one of the all-time favorites. That's right. And it speaks to the fact that we often think our feelings can make solid choices, but in fact, this study proves otherwise. Can you explain?
2: Well, the Love on the Suspension Bridge study um, is famous because it's, you know, what happens is you go to a park and you walk across a normal bridge and you walk across this very treacherous bridge. As you're in the middle of this treacherous bridge, a young lady approaches a guy and asks him to fill out a survey and then slips in her phone number. And the same thing happens on the bridge that's not a, that's just a normal bridge. And what you find is that on the treacherous bridge, the men are something like two or three times more likely to call the lady that's in the center of the bridge who asks them to fill out a survey and ask her out on a date and what this is an a really clever documentation of how really what they're experiencing is some form of arousal perhaps fear or anxiety but when they see that lady in the center of the bridge, They start to attribute it to feelings of attraction and romance. And it's one of those documentations that show that we really don't know. We're not good judges of how to interpret our feelings. And more generally, we want to believe that we know what we want. But for the most part, we're not really good at knowing what we want, right? I know what I want at this very second, but that doesn't really say much about what I'm going to want in five minutes or in a year or in 10 years. We're just really bad at that.
1: Yeah. There's so many nuances to this, and yet we fret thinking that we must find the perfect path to making perfect decisions in our lives. The other one, of course, is we often think we don't want anyone making choices for us, of course, but even hard choices, we still think that we are equipped to make those in our lives. But in fact- Again, that's actually not quite correct and there's an example of a study and it's a very tragic um, set of circumstances where they compared French and American parents where they were presented by a doctor with the decision to terminate treatment for their critically ill child Can you spell that one out for us, Sheena?
2: Yes. um, So we had parents in Chicago and in Paris who had just had a, a child, a baby, and the baby had been born with cerebral anoxia. All cases, the baby's life had been terminated because there was really no hope of the child being anything other than a vegetable if it had not been terminated. But the most important part of that study was that in France, it was the doctors that made the decision of when to pull the baby off of the lifeline, whereas in Chicago, procedure required that the parents be the ones to sign the final consent form. And what we discovered was that the, Chicago, the parents in Chicago had a much harder time coping with the death of their baby than did the ones in France. And so when you looked at the interviews and the kinds of things that the parents said in the interviews, it was really quite shocking and and, and a real stark contrast. The parents in France were much more likely to say things like, Noah was here for so little time, but in that time, he taught us so much. He gave us so much. He gave us a new perspective on life. Whereas American parents were much more likely to say things like, I can't believe they got me to do that. I feel as if I played a role in an execution. Well, what's interesting about that is that when you ask the American parents, would you rather have had the doctor make the choice for them? They all said no. And so there's that's yet another example of the real dilemma we have, that on the one hand, we want choices, even if we're not really that comfortable making them. Maybe we don't even feel equipped to make it. We certainly don't want to choose between a rock and a hard place. Nobody wants that. And yet we don't want to relinquish that choice.
1: Yeah, it is the ultimate paradox. And I think in a world, as I said before, that's getting more and more complex, Mm -hmm. it becomes... Sort of paramount that at times governments step in and and assist us in making some of these, in particular, really hard moral choices. And yet we're becoming even more resistant to that in the West. Yeah, you see that with the pandemic, right? We don't like
2: the governments making the choice about vaccines or masks. We feel we should have that, even if we don't, or masks, even if we don't necessarily have the necessary knowledge to know how to make that decision. That decision around the infant death—I mean, you know—most of us will make a decision about quantity versus quality of life at some point in our lives for either a loved one or ourselves.
1: Yeah, and and in the culture that we live in, we're becoming increasingly distant from communities—the perfect path to making perfectures that help guide us in those kinds of decisions. Because, of, of course, in the past and in other cultures we did have, and and some cultures still continue to have, these entities that help us make those decisions to render us choiceless when, when we're in those mm-hmm. very difficult um, situations. But in the West, for some reason, we think we're capable of doing it on our own and we'll hold on to that right to freedom, to choice, and yet it doesn't always serve us. It's a really interesting discussion to be having, I think, at this juncture in history. But Sheena, if you don't mind, I'd love to bring in something that has fascinated me as much as all of your studies. And that is the fact that over the decades of you doing this work, you've done all of this and you've written books, you've conducted interviews like this on, on calls to the other side of the world while blind. I'd love you to talk to this. I mean, I'll, maybe you could start by saying when you first found out that you would be blind as an adult.
2: Uh, so I was born with retinitis pigmentosa, and my parents found out that I was going blind when I was about three. It was a gradual deterioration. I was born partially sighted. And so by the time I was about you know, nine or 10, my ability to read had n- nearly gone to zero. And then by the time I was about 14 or 15, my ability, I, I now relied on other aids to walk around. So I actually got my first guide dog when I was in high school. Um, And so today I don't really have anything. I I can't even tell you if the light is on.
1: Right. So I've got to ask, I mean, I write books. I really struggle (laughs) with the writing process and the research and taking in huge amounts of information. I've got to lay out the pages over the floor and sort of piece together the bits of information. Your books are complex. They're not like, you know, simple stories that follow a, you know, unilinear thread. How do you do your work? Like, I hope you don't mind me asking you to break it down, but how do you go about, say, keeping all of that information in your mind and being able to sort of piece it apart and order it?
2: Um, Wow, that's an interesting question. So I have a laptop just like anybody else, and I have a voice synthesizer on it. And, you know, I was taught how to type when I was quite young. I was about 9 or 10 years old because back then they did teach Blind children had a type the, and, you know, they didn't know that it was actually going to be probably one of the most useful skills that they could give anybody at that time. So, you know, I can read through the voice synthesizer or any emails or, you know, any text. The only things that I can't read are graphs. I do have a full-time assistant who can read me graphs and things. I would say that probably one of the skills that I have that I've developed from when I was very young was How to create visuals in my head so that I can organize information. Mm. When I write, I probably do write differently than you in the sense that I'm not one to write and re-edit and then re-edit and then re-edit. I first have to see it in my mind's eye and then I sit and write because for me, the process of editing and re-editing and throwing it away and like moving this to that part and then that other part to this other part, that becomes quite challenging It's not an option for you. Um, And so really, I just, I knew right up front that I have to organize the information first off in my head.
1: Right. Yeah. It is a very, very different process. And what about when your editor comes back with notes and so on? Is that a, is that a difficult process or any, any kind of feedback that you might get from people that are detailed and require often an assumption that people can see, you know, the feedback?
2: Oh, that's a really thoughtful question. Um, I do have an assistant, so they'll put it in highlights and my assistant will read me the comments and will tell me where it was. And, you know,
1: if I'm writing something, I pretty much have that book memorized. So I'll know where they're talking about anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I hope you don't mind me asking because I do find it fascinating. And I've read a number of books by people who have got some kind of impairment that makes it harder. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've read Sheena, the book, The Butterfly in the Bell Jar. Have you ever read that book? Mm-mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's it's actually about the former editor of Vogue magazine, French Vogue. He has a car accident. He's essentially in a coma. I mean, he comes out of it, his mind is working but nothing else except for one eyelid so he can blink. And an assistant in the hospital picked up on the fact that he was communicating. He wrote an entire book by blinking the letters of the alphabet to this, this woman who typed out the story for him. I mean, that's next level in terms of being able to hold a story in your mind. Wow.
2: What's the name of the book?
1: The Butterfly in the Bell Jar. I can't remember the name of the author, but it's a, it's a famous book. And I think it might have even been turned into a movie. Anyway, I'll put, I'll put the name of the book in the show notes. So I'm talking here with Sheena Iyenga, who's a psychoeconomist at uh, Columbia University, who really pioneered a lot of the decision theory that many of us are now familiar with around the paradox of choice. So Sheena, what you're saying is that choice is really important, but we need to get smarter with how we navigate it, the number of choices that we make, the assumptions we make around our ability to make certain decisions. And I'm just wondering if we could actually now get quite granular with an example. And I thought we could use the example of renovating a home. I know it's particularly bourgeois and pretty micro in the scheme of things, but it does involve a lot of choices. And I know that you've got different ideas on how you can break down how to make choices. So could you just talk through maybe a couple of ways that people can go about making a whole bunch of decisions on a big project, say, for instance, like renovating a home?
2: It's so funny. You mentioned that that this decision of renovating the home. My significant other is in the process of renovating his home. And oh, my God, I see how he's overwhelmed and how he just wants to hastily make choices. And I'll be like thinking, don't you think you want to think about this some more? Don't you think you want to get some more options? So I would say that you have to upfront recognize two things. First, that choosing is effortful. If that choice matters to you, it's not going to happen in five seconds. If mm-hmm. it's something really, really important to you, then get prepared to put in the effort and the thought into it. If you don't care, then fine. Delegate it out to an expert. You know, I can always get an interior designer. And then if you don't like it, you know, look, it's fine. You delegated it out. Recognize that you got the benefit of not having to go through the process. But if you decide to go through the process, you do have to be ready to put in the effort. And so what does putting in the effort mean? Well, it means saying, okay, I have to break down what is it, what's the problems I'm trying to solve? Meaning, what are my needs? What are the goals associated with whatever this renovation is? How do I want to feel if I were to get this renovation? How much do I want to pay? I mean, if you had to identify what are all the needs or constraints that have to be addressed? And then within that, you then identify what are the various options. And in the process of identifying a lot of options, be prepared to be overwhelmed and be prepared to talk to people to help, or help you organize the information. Essentially, what real experts do, it's not that they know how to deal with many, many choices, but they, what they do know is how to take whatever choice that they get and categorize it. And that's essentially what you're trying to do. You, As you learn about the various options of paint and furniture and refrigerator and kitchen type, and how you want to do your deck, etc. how you want to paint the outside of your house, the inside of your house, the flooring, etc. You essentially want to learn not just what the options are, but what are the different ways in which those options get categorized? Meaning, well, this paint color goes really well with this floor color or this particular set of Furniture goes really well with this kind of a house type. And you sort of just gather all these different ways of organizing the options and you let your brain collect all these options and you're patient with yourself. And then you come at it and say, all right, given what I want, given what I've seen. Now you thoughtfully ask yourself, okay, what are the trade-offs associated with my top three to five different options? And then you choose. So the
1: magic number once again.
2: Yes. You don't ever want to go for more than, and in the end, you're going to narrow it down to three to five. You should never narrow it down to just one. Never put yourself in a situation of this or nothing, because that essentially sets yourself up for a suboptimal choice In general, you don't want to even set yourself with A or B, because then essentially, again, it's you kind of set yourself up for lack of satisfaction. If A or B leads you to create a C, that's helpful. I mean, if you're trying to make a choice that's really valuable to you, really try to optimize. So one of the ways in which Barry Schwartz and I differ is Barry would say, don't put in the effort and choice just satisfies. That the best way to be happy in life is to satisfy. Always pick good enough.
1: And it's a bit like the arranged marriage, love marriage thing. Sometimes when we're re- rendered choiceless, we can actually create the option that's been put upon us as the best one. So if we get good enough, we can actually turn it into the best option with that satisfies sure. type yep. approach.
2: And my my answer to that is I think that we should be choosy about choosing. So you pick what things really matter to you. And on those things you optimize. Mm-hmm. And then most things you should satisfy some.
1: Right. But I think
2: the things that really matter to you, you got to put in the thought and the effort. And you have to recognize that in the end, choosing is not an exercise of just picking and finding. You know, you think you can just You know, look at all the options and suddenly the option that's perfect for you will just strike you in the head. Now, you have to recognize that choosing is always an exercise in creativity, Mm. that you're figuring out what you want and you're going out there into the world and figuring out which option or set of options can be combined together to provide you a new option that fits what you want.
1: Yeah, I like that reminder that we've got to be patient with ourselves. If it matters to us, it is going to get a bit messy. It's going to take some sifting and mucking around and there's no perfect path. But that is sort of almost the beauty of it because it's a creative process and it's such a great reminder. Sheena, you also talk about categorizing things from low choice to high choice. Can you explain that methodology?
2: Well, one of the things that – so let's imagine you, I don't know, you really want to – learn about wines or something. You might think that the best strategy is to go to a wine shop uh, that offers you what, thousands of wines. Actually, you would be better off starting by going to a wine shop that's small, that just has a few wines. So you learn about a few wines and you can sort of see how they're different from one another. And you little by little scale to learning about more and more and more. And that's really what I mean by going from low choice to high choice. You know, start off in the shallows and then little by little get deeper and deeper because you're not born knowing what you want and you're not born knowing how to choose. It's like anything else. You're learning it little by little. You're getting more and more skillful at it.
1: Yeah, and if I've heard you right, you've said that, you know, the first decision to make is to decide does it matter to you? Is it a important decision that you need to wrestle with and deliberate and categorise and so on? And if it isn't, then, you know, there's a different methodology that you apply. And, and that's the, was it satisfying? And Mm -hmm. that's this idea of, you know, just make a good enough choice and then make it work from there. And I know that Dan Gilbert at Harvard, I think it is, has um, done a study that, you know, says that even if you ask a stranger who doesn't know much about you to choose for you, often it can turn out to be a better decision than the one that you make for yourself. Do you agree with that approach?
2: Well, many times what it is is that we tend to think we're unique, right? And we're actually not that unique. So strange. often whatever a stranger chose, it more than likely,
1: it probably works for you too. Mm, okay. It Again, it's another bit of a comfort to just know that sometimes it really doesn't matter because I think a big part of decision-making is the agonizing around the idea that we think that we're meant to know the perfect decision.
2: I never choose my wines. I just call the sommelier and... She sends over a bunch of wines and I just allow myself to be surprised and I'm perfectly content with that.
1: Well, that's the other hack, isn't it? Is to ask somebody who knows more than you do on a subject. And that's a technique that I talk about a fair bit and I use quite often. If I need to buy something where it's, you know, I had to buy a running pack for hiking and honestly, it was doing my head in. And so I just rang my brother who knows all about these things. He's obsessed by it and just said, which one should I get? and just had to go with the one that he suggested, and it turned out to be perfectly fine. But, of course, we're talking micro, but, you know, in 2022, the world has got pretty complex, as we've mentioned a couple of times. And it's really strange because the flip side is that we're getting more and more obsessed about having agency over our choices. And I watch my friends, Sheena, with their children. I know that when I was growing up, it might have been the same for you. My parents gave me one option for breakfast. It was dumped in front of me and we had to eat it. And I watch my friends with their children, they'll ask them to choose the cereal or do you want avocado on toast or do you want eggs benedict? I watch these kids kind of get overwhelmed and then they just make some choice and invariably don't eat it. We've got this obsession with providing more and more options. I think it is correlating with a hell of a lot of anxiety. I think the more anxious we get, the more we feel we've got to take control of our options. And yet the more options we're presented with, of course, causes more and more anxiety. And so this is the world that we're living in. I'm wondering if you have got some thoughts on this because I know your latest book that you're going to be publishing later this year draws on some of this. This, and I think it's called Think Bigger, right? Yes. So it's about these bigger decisions that um, society needs to make at the moment. They're hard, big problems, and yet we're probably worse at making decisions. What have you found on the macro level? What can you share with us on that in that respect?
2: So what Think Bigger is. So what happened was after I wrote The Order of Choosing, one of the big questions that people kept asking me is, so you've given me a better sense of how I can think about how I can become a better chooser. And that assumes that I have a bunch of options and I can become better at picking and finding, so to speak. But how do I create meaningful choices? What Think Bigger is, is essentially a new method for how to create, how to do creative problem solving in essence, how to create new choices. And so it's unlike The Art of Choosing, it's not a sort of a pure, sort of more philosophical and scientific and descriptive book. What Think Bigger is, is a very prescriptive book. It literally says, if you have a problem that you want to solve, here's a process you can follow to help you create a meaningful choice to help you solve it. And that could be a small problem like, you know, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what's my next career move? Or it could be a really big problem like, you know, how do I create this new entrepreneurial venture? Or how do I create something that might in some small way, reduce like the negative effects of climate change or take any kind of social personal problem. And you can apply this methodology because what I realized was that we had learned so much from neuroscience about how learning and memory worked and how we form thoughts. And we had learned so much from cognitive science about Decision making where our where our limitations are in handling choice and, and where the strengths are, like where the power of choice really comes from. But nobody had really put that together to be able to tell people, all right, if you need to create a meaningful choice for yourself, how do you do it? And that's really what Think Bigger is about.
1: Are you able to give some insight? Because the first thing I'm thinking about is, okay, so what are the steps? You know, what, what are the little <laughs> take-home hacks? You're yet to finish writing the book, so it's a bit of an unfair uh, question. So essentially
2: I have one major tool in Think Bigger, which I call the choice map. Um, and uh, what the choice map is is a tool by which you organise the various sort of so you identify your problem. And you organize the various options that you can use to combine in different ways to come up with different solutions to your problem. Um, and then they give you a way to pick.
1: How do you then pick? You know, what's the strategy for that?
2: Oh, for picking. So um to think of the choice map that I created as an alternative method for generating ideas to brainstorming. So I'm actually opposed to brainstorming. I don't think that's a useful tool. Um, so choice mapping gives you the ability to generate many, many options. And then you use another tool that I created called the desires triangle for actually picking. And so I think a lot of times the big mistake people make is that when they have a problem. So let's say I had a problem and I came to you and you say, "Ah, oh, well, you should obviously choose this. And it'll be obvious to you that you gave me a solution that absolutely satisfies everything I said I need. But the big problem is you, you gave me an option, a solution that satisfies what I need, not what I want. And that's because we often aren't very good at articulating what we want. We have a we have an idea in our heads of how we want to feel if we found the right solution. And so what I did was I created a desires triangle so that it's where you codify essentially all your biases. What are the feelings you want to have associated with that solution?
1: And I think that's really what you need when choosing. Yeah. And I can see how that could play out for really big decisions. Decisions that implicate society as a Broad whole because, you know, I'm thinking like the climate crisis and the decisions that sure. need to be made there. And it frustrates me at times. I, I work in the climate space. I, it frustrates me how we forget to bring in, well, what kind of a world do we want to be living in? We talk all these nuts and bolts and, and carbon emissions and so on. And the, but really what it comes down to for me world going to look like? And how much do we want to fight for it? How much do we want to hold on to the things that really define our existence on this planet? And I really like that idea of bringing in what we want. And you're right. We really struggle to decipher between what we want and what we need and to bring all of those elements together to make the best decision.
2: So the way to simplify it, I would say you use reason to generate useful solutions, but you use your biases, your feelings, to pick amongst those useful solutions.
1: Okay, I can see how that methodology could really work. You narrow it down um, using reason, and then you go forth and make the final choice based on on your needs, or oh, sorry, you know your desires, your feelings. Yes, your yeah, desires. Your desires. Sheena this has been a really really interesting conversation um i have to confess i am somebody who really struggles with decisions often the small <laughs> um the small ones you know uh, not the big ones so much i do know that our brains sometimes compute decisions as t- being almost equal you know we don't distinguish at times between big decisions and small decisions, we can get equally wrapped up in it. Um, But I really do take from your discussion, this idea of first deciding how much does it matter. So Sheena, that was a wonderfully satisfying conversation. And I found it strangely really comforting. I hope everybody who's listened to this has as well. And I really appreciate your time. And I do appreciate the extra care that you have to go to, to set up A link and do this conversation from the other side of the world. And yeah, good luck with writing your new book.
2: Thank you so much and good
1: luck to you. So there are a bunch of take-homes from this awesome chat with Sheena, the gist of which I think really gets to the heart of making it a less anxious experience, which then in turn enables us to make better decisions when we're not so anxious. Okay, so your first decision should always be, is it important? Like, does it really matter to me? If it doesn't, then choose good enough or delegate it to someone for whom it does matter or even delegate it to a stranger. Now, if it is important, and this is the bit I really like, allow the time and effort, be patient and enjoy the process because as Sheena says, it's creative. It's like you're creating your life in this moment. I've got to say, I found this bit really profoundly useful. I mean, I fret with my decisions because I think I should be faster. I think that the answer should just be very, very clear and I'm somehow getting it wrong. So, as soon as Sheena said, be patient with yourself, this is creative. This is a creative process it switched everything on its head for me. It takes away the anxiety, which then allows me to, of course, make better decisions. The other little tip she leaves with us is limit your choices wherever possible. So somewhere around seven is about right. Don't, however, limit yourself to one or two options like an A or B situation. Next, categorize and let all the considerations swirl around for a bit. You know, again, it's creative. Then once you're down to two or three options, you know, you've used your reason to get to that point, allow your feelings to actually pick the final choice. So I mentioned a few books and links in that episode. I'll put them all in the show notes as usual, but I'll also just flag here Currently, I'm working on a charity project, and it's with the Gargat Gunji Trust, and I'm raising money to fund Indigenous women rangers in West Arnhem land. West Arnhem is one of the most remote places in the world. You can't actually get in there as a tourist, and it's really all about getting Indigenous people back to country, and this program is one of the most successful projects for doing that. It works in so many different ways. And this charity project that I've set up, it works by you guys donating whatever you can, and I match whatever you donate dollar for dollar. And that's using all of the, the proceeds from the sale of I Quit Sugar, which I've talked about in the press and it's on my website. If you want to know more about that, I essentially gave away all of my money from my I Quit Sugar business. And I now give it to these kinds of projects, which I very carefully research to ensure that they're legit, they're effective, and they really speak to the level of care that all of us are aching to attend to at the moment. So I'll put the link to that charity in the show notes. I really invite you to donate. I'm trying to get to a certain level by the end of June. It's wild. It's caring. It's really trying to make the world a better place. Until next week, please stay wild.